I would bid you turn in your scriptures, if you would, to Philippians, the fourth chapter, and we'll take as our text this morning verses 10 through 13, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Hear now God's inerrant authoritative word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we ask your blessing on this, your holy word, that you will drive it home to our hearts. Give us minds to understand, hearts to receive and lives to be transformed by this, your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Luke tells us in Acts 16.12 that the city of Philippi was one of the leading cities in Macedonia. Philippi was established around 360 B.C. by Greek colonists and was originally called Crenides, or fountains in Greek. Shortly thereafter, in 356 B.C., it was renamed by Philip II of Macedon. There were gold mines close by, and the location was strategically situated between Amphipolis and Neapolis. So Philip established a garrison there and took control of the gold mines and established a mint there. And when the Romans later subdued the Macedonians in 168 B.C., Philippi then became a Roman colony and continued to have great influence in the region of Macedonia, though Amphipolis became the Macedonian capital rather than Philippi. Matthew Henry, in his introduction to the epistle, makes several telling observations that bear repeating. He observes, Paul seems to have had a very particular kindness for the church at Philippi, which he himself had been instrumental in planting, and though he had the care of all the churches, he had upon that account a particular fatherly care of this. To those to whom God has employed us to do any good, we should look upon ourselves both as encouraged and engaged to study to do more good. He looked upon them as his children, and having begotten them by the gospel, he was desirous by the same gospel to nourish and nurse them up. Henry then notes that Paul was called to minister in Philippi rather in rather an extraordinary way. As we see in Acts 16.9, that Paul received a vision in the night of a Macedonian pleading with Paul to come and help them. So Paul did. Notice Matthew Henry's other points. Two, at Philippi he suffered hard things. He was scourged and put into the stocks. Yet he had not the less kindness for the place, for the hard usage he met with there, we must never love our friends the less for the ill treatment which our enemies give us. Three, the beginnings of that church were very small. Lydia was converted there, and the jailer, and a few more. Yet that did not discourage him. If good be not done at first, it may be done afterwards, and the last works may be more abundant. 
We must not be discouraged by small beginnings. And four, it seems by many passages in this epistle that this church at Philippi grew into a flourishing church, and particularly that the brethren were very kind to Paul. He had reaped of their temporal things, and he made a return in spiritual things. He acknowledges the receipt of a present they had sent him, <clears throat> and this when no other church communicated with him as concerning giving and receiving. And he gives them a prophet's and apostle's reward in this epistle, which is of more value than thousands of gold and silver. The church in Philippi was arguably the nearest and dearest to Paul's heart. This makes itself evident simply by the language he uses as he writes to them. Oh, how he loved this congregation. And this morning we come to examine this particular section of the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle, verses 10 through 13. And we'll explore it using a very simple outline. One is the gift acknowledged in verse 10. Two is the lesson learned in verse 11. Three is the lesson's secret in verse 12. And four is the astounding ability in verse 13. So we begin with verse 10, the gift acknowledged. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned before, but you had no opportunity. So Paul takes this opportunity to acknowledge the gift that the Philippian church had sent to him. For a while there, they'd not been able to help Paul. And he recognizes that during that time, it wasn't that they didn't care for him. They just lacked the opportunity. And while our hearts may reach out to our brothers in compassion, we may not always have the means of meeting their needs. But once they did have the opportunity, they sent Epaphroditus with some supplies to help meet his needs, as he mentions in more detail in verse 18. As Matthew Henry says again, it is a good work to succor and help a good minister in trouble. The nature of true Christian sympathy is not only to feel concern for our friends in their troubles, but to do what we can to help them. The apostle was often in bonds, imprisonments, and necessities. And so the Philippians, as they were able, sent help to Paul, and Paul here graciously acknowledges that help and takes that opportunity to also give instruction to them on the grace of Christian contentment. Brings us to the second point, the lesson learned. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul begins verse 11 with a clarifying point. Okay, not that I'm speaking of being in need, or not that I speak from need, as the New American Standard puts it, or not that I speak in respect of want, says the King James. As Matthew Poole points out here, he doth anticipate any conceit they might have, as if he had a mean soul and his joy were solely for the fruit of their care he had received in the supply of his want, and as he acknowledges their gift. And yet he's making it very clear that he's, he's not fishing for more. He wants to be quite clear that he's not trying to leverage them into sending him another gift. As Calvin says, accordingly he declares that he had been gratified by their liberality in such a way that he could at the same time endure want with patience. He makes that clear in his next words, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And here he underscores for them a proper Christian frame of mind regarding our outward circumstances in their vicissitudes and their changes, their fluctuations, their ups and downs. 
Jeremiah Burroughs explores that frame of mind at length in his short but powerful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I commend to you. In it, he gives an excellent definition of Christian contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, John Gill expands on this, and I urge you to bear with me, as the quote is a touch lengthy, but it is full of sound instruction. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content or to be sufficient, as the Latin Vulgate version renders it. For the word here used signifies to be self-sufficient or to have a sufficiency in oneself, which in the strict sense of the phrase is only true of God, who is El Shaddai, God all-sufficient but in a lower sense is true of such who are contented with their present state and condition, with such things as they have, be they more or less, and think that they are enough. And such persons have a sort of an all-sufficiency in them. They are thankful for everything they have, be it little or more, and in every state, whether in adversity or prosperity, and quietly and patiently submit to the will of God and cheerfully take and bear whatever is assigned them as their portion. And such an one was the apostle. He was not only content with food and raiment and such things as he had, but even when he had nothing at all, when he had neither bread to eat nor clothes to wear, when he was in hunger and thirst, in cold and nakedness, as was sometimes this case. And therefore he does not say here that he had learned to be content with such things as he had, but in what I am. And this he had not by nature, but by grace. It was not natural, but adventitious to him. It was not what he had acquired by his industry, but what he had learned, and that not in the school of nature and reason, while an unregenerate man, nor at the feet of Gamaliel, while he was training up under him in the law of Moses and in the traditions of the elders, but was taught it by the revelation of Christ, and under the teachings of the Spirit of God, and that in the school of affliction, by a train of experiences, of many sorrows, afflictions, and distresses. For this lesson is learned quite contrary to all the rules and reasons among men, not by prosperity, but by adversity. Add to which the consideration of God being our portion and exceeding great reward, of having an interest in Christ and all things in him, and of the profits and pleasures of a life of contentment, and of the promises which God has made to such, and of the future glory and happiness which will shortly be enjoyed, so that a believer may say, who has the smallest pittance on earth, of, of earthly enjoyments, this, with a covenant God, with an interest in Christ, with grace here and heaven hereafter, this is enough. <clears throat> now, Paul's clear that this knowledge, this perspective, this life orientation was not inborn. It did not come naturally, but was something he had to learn. In our own experience, we find that such contentment does not come all in a flash when we're converted. It's not like justification or adoption, acts of God's uh, a grace performed in a moment, but rather a part of our sanctification, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism recognizes in question 35, is a work 
of God's free grace. This contentment Paul had to learn, and so do we. And the greater the measure that we learn it, the greater is our freedom and ability to live to the glory of God in whatever state we find ourselves. One of the eminent leaders of the Reformation was John Calvin. Calvin was accused of many terrible things by the enemies of the gospel. The Roman Catholic Cardinal Sodaletto passed through Geneva one time in disguise because he wanted to see for himself how that heretic Calvin lived. And when he found him, he was surprised to find that he did not live in a mansion with servants, but lived in a plain house and answered the door himself. One thing that even Calvin's enemies had to admit was that money and honors held no sway over him. Year after year, he refused an increase of salary and often refused all sorts of gifts offered to him. And when Pope Pius IV learned of Calvin's death, he had this to say about him. The strength of the heretic consisted in this, that money never had the slightest charm for him. If I had such servants, my dominions would extend from sea to sea. Calvin had learned Paul's secret of Christian contentment. And it's Calvin who says this about Paul's words here. In what state I am, says he, that is, whatever my condition may be, I am satisfied with it. Why? Because saints know that they thus please God. Hence, they do not measure sufficiency by abundance, but by the will of God, which they judge of by what takes place, for they are persuaded that their, their affairs are regulated by his providence and good pleasure. It's like Matthew Henry says, the apostle was often in bonds, imprisonments, and necessities, but in all he learned to be content, to bring his mind to his condition and make the best of it. Pride, unbelief, vain hankering after something we have not got, and fickle disrelish of present things make men discontented under even favorable circumstances. Let us pray for patient submission and hope when we are abased, for humility and a heavenly mind when exalted, and in a low state not to lose our comfort in God, nor distrust his providence, nor take any wrong course for our own supply, in a prosperous condition not to be proud, secure, or worldly. This is a harder lesson than the other, for the temptations of fullness and prosperity are more than those of affliction and want. And as we have all things by Christ, let us do all things for him and to his glory. Which brings us to the third point, and that's the lesson's secret. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, in verse 12. Paul further unpacks this idea of contentment that he introduced in verse 11. He juxtaposes three specific contrasting examples. To be brought low and to abound. To face pl plenty and hunger. To live in abundance and need. And in mastering all of these contrasting circumstances, these ups and downs, he says he has learned the secret. To find yourself in any of these uh, contrasting circumstances is not difficult and requires no secret. 
Nearly everybody will, at certain times in their lives, find themselves in any of these contrasting situations. But to face these ups and downs with genuine Christian contentment, that does not come naturally, even for a Presbyterian minister, and perhaps especially for a Presbyterian minister. In each of these conditions, there lurk many pitfalls that would work hard against a life lived to the glory of God. To face those conditions in a way that honors the Lord is a secret that has to be learned. John Calvin points out, prosperity is wont to puff up the mind beyond measure, and adversity, on the other hand, to depress. From both faults he declares himself to be free. If a man knows to make use of present abundance in a sober and temperate manner, with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything, whenever it may be the good pleasure of the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to the measure of his ability, and is also not puffed up, that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is a peculiarly excellent and rare virtue, and much superior to the endurance of poverty. Let all who wish to be Christ's disciples exercise themselves in acquiring this knowledge which was possessed by Paul. But in the meantime, let them accustom themselves to the endurance of poverty in such a manner that it will not be grievous and burdensome to them when they come to be deprived of their riches. Then Matthew Poole adds this telling observation, tying our contentment, or lack thereof, to the degree of our trust in the hand of the Father. Matthew Poole says, How adverse soever his state was, he had attained to such equanimity that he could be content with such things as he had. References Hebrews 13.5. And cheerfully and patiently submit to God's most wise disposal of him, knowing his most righteous and tender-hearted Father would neither leave nor forsake him, having already given him greater things than any of these sublunary ones he could stand in need of. And he references Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I've said it before and I'll say it again, most likely. D. James Kennedy has said that all of life is a school. And in that school, every day, God gives us exercises, many and varied. And yet in all of those exercises, assignments, and classes, the lesson is always the same. The lesson is, do you trust me? And before we move to our last point, let's briefly see how Matthew Poole unpacks the specifics of how we're to respond in each of those ups and downs. He says, when faring well and having a large revenue, to be temperate. He references 1 Corinthians 9.25, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Humble and communicative. 1 Timothy 6.18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. When hungry and poor, not to be distressed, but confident our Heavenly Father will provide enough in his season. He references Matthew 7:11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
and 2 Corinthians 4.8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, giving, as he says, an elixir at present that will turn all into gold. That brings us to the four, in the fourth place to the astounding ability, where he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I must say the Philippians 4.13 is one of the most oft-quoted, yet most oft-abused verses in Scripture. Wish I had a dollar for every time I've seen this verse quoted, usually without its surrounding context, of course, in a way that implies that I can do anything I set my mind to if I just want it bad enough and if I have Jesus. And it always seems to be used as an encouragement toward the most positive outcomes. You can... You can win this game. You can get that promotion. You can climb that mountain. Brother, you can conquer that sickness. You can get the girl of your dreams. You can do anything you set your mind to. Look at Philippians 4.13. Now, it's interesting. I don't, I don't think I ever remember hearing that verse used to say things like, you can lose this game and still bring glory to God. You can miss out on that promotion and still be gracious and bear witness for him. You can endure that sickness until it finally kills you and still bring glory to the Father. You can lose everything in a financial disaster. You can be in poverty and grow hungry. You can do all things can't say I've ever heard it used that way. And most of the time I have seen it used, it's lacking its context. Now, I can't remember who it was that first said that the three most uh, important things in a properly biblical hermeneutic are, one of you may be able to tell me, context, context, and context. It's a misuse of Scripture to just pluck isolated phrases from the Bible that sound pretty cool and use them to your own ends. Now, it's crucial that you must examine a verse of Scripture within its surrounding context. And in the context of Philippians 4.13, make it abundantly clear that Paul is not saying that as long as you have Jesus, you can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Notice how John Gill puts it. I can do all things which must not be understood in the greatest latitude and without any limitation, for the apostle was not omnipotent, either in himself or by the power of Christ. Nor could he do all things that Christ could do. But it must be restrained to the subject matter treated of. The sense is that he could be content in every state and could know how to behave himself in adversity and prosperity amidst both poverty and plenty. All these things he could do, not in his own strength, for no man was more conscious of his own weakness than he was, or knew more of the impotency of human nature, and therefore always directed others to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and in the grace that is in Christ on which he himself always depended, and by which he did what he did, as he adds here, through Christ which strengthens me. 
this secret that he learned, this secret of being able to be in want as well as to be about to abound, the secret of being able to glorify God in any and every circumstance that providence throws his way, the secret that he learned is not something that he could accomplish on his own, in his own strength. He can do all these things, not in his own power or strength, but only through relying on the strength of Jesus Christ. And as John Calvin said, hence we infer that Christ will not be less strong and invincible in us also if, conscious of our own weakness, we place reliance upon his power alone. Many of you know I've been waging a battle with cancer. Uh, the Lord has blessed me with more than a year of undetectable numbers, good numbers. Uh, I learned quite recently that those numbers have once again began, begun to creep up. Uh, at this point, the doctor is not alarmed, keeping an eye on things, uh, but it's no longer undetectable. And what those uh, numbers will do in the future, I don't know. In the world's terms, I may come out of this battle a winner, or I may come out a loser. I may abound, or I may be brought low. I do not yet know what is God's providence for me in this matter, but I do know that God's providence is good and just and faithful, regardless of whether I win or lose. We pray for a positive outcome, and I, I thank you for your prayers as well, but I know that with Christ as my strength, I can do all things. I can win or I can lose and still bring glory to God. And the truth and the depth of God's love for us is not in the least diminished if we find ourselves in a cross-providence. And of course, we must remember that Paul was writing to the believers in Philippi. So I'm speaking to you, who are believers. Now, if you manage to find yourself under the sound of my voice today, perhaps not here in this room, but wherever you may be, and you have never yet come to the foot of the cross as a repentant sinner, to grasp Christ in his saving mercy with the empty arms of faith, uh, to be justified and declared righteous, not on the basis of your own righteousness, but solely on the basis of what Christ has merited for you, then I must tell you, my friend, as kindly and yet as urgently as I can, that you are still lost in your sins and without hope save in the mercy of Jesus Christ offered to you today in the gospel. And I must tell you that these words of comfort and these words of assurance cannot apply to you until you have settled with God that most fundamental question of the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon your poor soul. And I say it as kindly as I can. You must first come to Christ in faith and repentance, embracing him as he is offered in the gospel before you can have a right to see the cross providences in your life in any positive light, unless it be that they serve to drive you into the waiting arms of the gospel of Jesus Christ for your redemption. Come to him today and do not wait. So let us be clear, I'm speaking here to believers when I speak of being able to do all things through him who strengthens you. And when I speak of being able to see even the most cross providences through the lens of the love of God. John Murray says, there is always a purpose of love 
behind dark providences. One of the most difficult things to do when the road is rough or when the billows are passing over us is to feel that God still loves us. It's the last thing we can accept. But we're not called to feel. We're called to believe. We are to measure God's love, he says, not by his providence, but by his promise. And he quotes Charles Spurgeon, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. When providences are dark, it is difficult to read them. It's the word that tells us how to view them. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. By faith we have to trace it all to the hand of our Father. The crook in the lot is all of God's making, and this is still John Murray. Joseph, after suffering the greatest indignities at the hand of his brothers, traced it all to the hand of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save people alive. And that old Puritan John Bunyan puts this in perspective as he says this, If we can but comprehend the depths of Christ's love, we are more able to explain God's providence and see how God is working through them. There are two kinds, seemingly good and seemingly bad. As Jacob blessed Joseph's sons by crossing his hands, God may lay the blessing where we would not. There are providences that smile upon the flesh, such as health, wealth, plenty, ease, and friends. But the blessing is not in them. There are also providences that take away from us, such as sickness, losses, crosses, persecutions, and afflictions. And usually in these we cry out in pain when they come upon us. But God is crossing his hands for the blessing of his people in these and sanctifies affliction. I do not know what God's providence has in store for you this coming week, in these coming months. I don't know whether you'll find yourself abounding or being abased. Will you find yourself needing to learn these lessons of affliction, turning to Christ in reliance upon his strength to grow your patience, to weaken the discontent and murmuring that comes all too naturally to your heart? And I speak to you, brothers, as ministers of the gospel, as pastors of Christ's flock. Many are the temptations, the snares, and the pitfalls peculiar to the ministry. If Paul, with all of his gifts and graces, as useful as was his ministry in the early church, if Paul had to learn these things, don't you think you might need to learn a few things as well? This week, will you have to make a bridle for your tongue so that you don't murmur and complain against God in his dealings with you? Or, I know, you had your dreams and your desires when entering upon the Christian ministry. We all did. Oh, to be the next R.C. Sproul. Or Sinclair Ferguson, with that great accent. In terms, of, in terms of influence for the kingdom. Or, perhaps you guys in this room, to be the next John Knox. Or James Guthrie, or Samuel Rutherford. And yet, as circumstances have conspired against you, you have not achieved that status. God's seen fit for you to do labor in a, in a small corner among a 
pitiful little flock of weak and diseased sheep. They're all weak and diseased sheep. People are not listening to you like they should. Perhaps for you, the days ahead are days of leanness, abasement, hunger, and pain. Perhaps even prison. And I speak of that more realistically today than I would have 15 years ago. Can you still be faithful to your charge? Can you continue to persevere? Can you learn that lesson, which is always the same? Do you trust me? Or will those future days perhaps be times of abounding for you in which God will shower his blessings upon your efforts, upon your labors? Will more and more people come to look upon you as a wise shepherd? Will your influence grow and bear abundant fruit for a plentiful harvest? Will your flock see tremendous growth spiritually and numerically? Will you perhaps even get a raise? We pray for such things, and rightly so. Yet should that be the case... Please, oh, please be sure you seek the face of God to respond in kind, to be temperate, exercising moderation in plenty, to be humble, which is so hard to do in times of plenty, even for a Presbyterian minister, especially for a Presbyterian minister, to share of our abundance with those in need, if these future days for you are days of plenty, they will be days in which you must consciously depend on God to wean you from the love of the things of this earth, to protect you from the deceitfulness of riches, to shield you from the siren-like perils of the praises of the tongues of men. Will you be sure to cultivate that spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving to God, always esteeming Him as your highest love, not the things that come your way in times of abundance. I don't know what future days will bring for you or for me. Plenty or want, ease or struggle, victory or defeat, health or sickness, success or failure. These will only manifest themselves as time goes on in the outworking of God's providence. But how will we respond to those eventualities? Through Christ, who by his Spirit strengthens us, we can do all things. We can live for God's glory, no matter what circumstances may bring our way. We have the very promise of God to that effect. Through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. Oh, make but trial of his love, experience will decide how blessed they are and only they who in his truth confide. Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight. He'll make your wants his care. Pray with me, Father. Father.